Hello, I'm Simon Webber, and this is Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which we get up close and personal with some of the best chefs in the business. Now, amongst those who've already joined me, Angela Hartnett, Nisha Katona, Marcus Waring, Tom Kerry, to name but a few. Everyone's story is so, so different, but we aim to get to the bottom of it finding out when they discovered their passion for food and how they channeled that passion into succeeding at the very highest level. We also discuss outdoor cooking, of course, which is something it's fair to say today's guest is famous for. Now, young Mr. James Martin has been a mainstay on our screens since the mid-1990s. In fact, he probably owns food television, if the truth be told. Shows included Big Breakfast, Ready, Steady, Cook. And, of course, it's hugely popular Saturday morning programmes, first on the BBC and now on ITV. From a Yorkshire farming family, he went to Catering College in Scarborough before honing his skills under the likes of Anthony Worrell Thompson and Marco Pierre White. He then became head chef at the Hotel Duvan of Winchester at the tender age of just 21. He's since opened restaurants and a cookery school, written numerous books, gained his pilot's licence, famously built a ridiculous collection of cars, Despite all of that, I do really like him. Uh, Mr. James Martin, welcome, my friend. Cheers, fella. Cheers. Cheers. You're on a beer already. James, it's it's 10.04 in the morning. Not wrong with that, lad. Not wrong with that. Is this a secret you need to share with us? No. Just thought I'd have a beer while I'm chiding you. Why not? Yeah, why not? But uh, you've done your research, clearly. Thank you. Yeah, I've been around a while. It, it's, the, it's the longest intro of anybody on the show, and we had to edit that down to fit it all in. <laughs> so, so let's go back to start, because, you know, you're very, very proud of your Yorkshire roots, and, and your background is farming. So what was, what was growing up like for James Martin? Um, I mean, you know, a lot of people say they have a tough childhood. I had an amazing childhood. We didn't have anything, as in, uh, you know, we were tenant farmers really um and and sort of worked the farm and that kind of stuff my dad worked at uh, a place called castle out he was an ex uh, copper then he was a publican and and then ended up at sort of castle howard and then sort of fell into farming really and 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 i suppose that's where i sort of gained the ethos to bad graft that before you went to school you had to muck out the pigs you had to do all that before you even went to school from when I mean, you can walk you can work that kind of stuff and i i, I learned the values really of I wasn't going to get anything, if that makes sense. Uh, I learned it quite early on that uh, I wasn't going to get anything. You had to work for everything. So, and I understand. I understood quite early on that that if you saved up and you got uh, a materialistic thing, it was just my sister would go out and get fifty million items for a fiver. Um, <laughs> I used to save up and get get one thing, a BMX. You know, I still got the BMX over there. Uh, that, that, <laughs> but it had to be the, the particular BMX. You know, and you value those things. So. I think, you know, my childhood was, was was amazing and I got the opportunity to sort of be outside and that's where the countryside I love, that kind of stuff. Academically, I wasn't very good at school. In fact, I was hopeless. I failed all my exams at school, cooking everything. I failed, came up with no qualifications at all. I just had a passion for food from quite early, early doors. But with school, James, I mean, you sort of said you failed everything, but is that because, I mean, you, you discovered later in life that, that you're actually dyslexic. Do you think that if you'd been diagnosed they'd realize that early it might be different because i like i said i've known you a long time and you are known within our industry for being the lad that never stops grafting i can't imagine that you were lazy or naughty for that matter no i wasn't i was never naughty i was always a, I was always the quiet one in the back of the class you know there's always one one kid in the not the brainy one but i was always the quiet kid in the back of the class i would never i was never sporty i was never i was never into that i was just i just was in myself you know i was just I just concentrated on what I knew I was any good at and what I loved, and that was food. So academically, I kind of shut off from that, really. I knew when I had a, a spelling test, I knew that I'd be in tears on a Wednesday, Thursday night because I had 20,000 words to write. So it wasn't diagnosed then. Having said that, the benefit, of, and I think there's a huge benefit from being dyslexic. A lot of people think it's a negative, and it's, it's far from it. It focuses your attention onto other things that you genuinely love. Rather than be good at everything, nobody's good at everything. No. And, and I learned quickly that Hamlet was no good to me and Shakespeare was a waste of time. And I shut off from it. And I diverted my attention to what I was any good at, mathematics. And we used to get put in a, you remember you used to grade you at school. There was always the A class, the B class, the C class. And you could never get beyond, you could always do better, but never get, once you were in the class that I was in, it was called life skills. Uh-huh. And and people thought it was the thickos class. Well, all of those guys. We had a school reunion. We had a school reunion, Simon. And all of the people at the school reunion was it was hilarious. The, the nice cars that were parked at that school reunion 
were all in the class that I was in because they all understand from an early age about business, profit loss, setting up bank accounts, doing tax returns, all that when you were sort of 14, 15. So when you left school and went to London, when I did when I was 16, 17, you learned how to pay your rent and all that kind of stuff. You did. There wasn't my mum. There wasn't my. There was no family to pay for it. You had to go out there and graft it. So I, I learned an invaluable lesson at school. We had a, a guy on Sunday brunch a while ago. Um, it was a discussion about disabilities, both physical, mental, or disadvantages. And he was saying that in years to come, and I think we're starting to see that now, that we won't look at things like you just said there as them being a disadvantage it's just a difference that having dyslexia is your difference there's there's nothing wrong with dyslexia it's a condition and therefore it's like how do you how do we live our lives a different way and you, you're a prime example of that well it's like, it's like uh, type 1 diabetes you know you can't get rid of it no no matter sort of so you change your diet it's not gonna it's not, it's it's there you, you've got to live with it so you either live with it and be miserable or or deal with it and be positive about it and and I think for me, really, I, I didn't I didn't understand the word dyslexic until I was basically was on the, the old BBC Saturday Kitchen when I got to read an autocue and I couldn't do it. I'll be honest with you, Simon. I, I was petrified. And and there's a lovely lady who still works at the BBC called Carla Maria Lawson sent me on a, on a course. And, and I still, to this day, can't do it. If I'm sat here like I am talking to you and I'm reading autocue, I can't do it. If I'm moving and cooking and doing stuff and I'm doing 50 million things, she said, you need to move. You need to walk, talk, do things, and then you can nail the autocue. And I do it without thinking about it. And I think that's where I, I was quite fortunate that, that when I did the Saturday show, I was able to speak to somebody about, and I didn't realize how severe it was. You know, when, when she said, well, when was the last time you read a book? And Simon, I've never read a book, ever Whoa. in my life, ever. Really? Never read a book in my life. Never, never. And, and, and I'm not, not proud of it. I'm proud of it because... Need to read a book. All, all my all my books are, are car books. I've got I've got uh, I've got a car book here. Uh, <laughs> I've got another car book here. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? They're, they're interested in your stuff. So I I I, kind of, I think the last book I ever read was Peter and Jane. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Licking, licking chicken. You know that one, that kind of one. Um, <laughs> and I, I just yeah, that's. I've actually still got it. Actually, I've got yeah. I've still got that. Yeah, I'll go get it. Yeah, um, it was called uh, Chicken Licking. This is true. I didn't realise we were going to be doing this. Love this. Oh my! I can't believe you've actually got this. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Chicken Licking. It's got a girl called Harriet's number in it, but I don't know who Harriet is. But anyway, I was only I was only six. <laughs> Mate, that. That is absolutely brilliant. All right, well, let, let, let's on, on early life then. So, so mum and dad obviously massively important because I, you know, I, I know that still now your mum you regard as sort of being the rock in in your life, really. I think family is so important. I think you realise, you know, I've been going through what you're doing. Particularly the older you are, you realise you, you're now in a position to help them, whereas before you weren't in a position. You know, they supported you. Um, in terms of mentally, in terms of physically, did everything you possibly can do. I wasn't into go-karting, so I didn't go around go-kart tracks and all that kind of stuff. I just wanted to work on the farm and got given the opportunity to, and a door open in, in, in restaurants and pubs when I was a young kid. I was working in restaurants when I was eight years old. So, I'm, you know, when I was 10, I had my own little outside coating business. I was coating for weddings <laughs> when I was 12. Get you out know, of I, here. That's why, yeah, no, seriously, seriously. I've got old pictures of me when I was 11 years old working and, and catering for weddings and and my dad would understand and tell you that you know you bought a chicken for well, i think it was about one pound fifty back then but one pound fifty you had to sell it for a certain amount of money because that had to pay for your fuel everything else and and so i understood that kind of stuff very very early on how it all works and i think you know that that opportunity was my parents they gave me the opportunity to sort of open a door and you know, I remember working for Brian Turner at the, at the Malian Spout in Gothland. Brian Turner did a, a dinner with the late, great Keith Floyd uh, one night each. And I was 11 years old working in the kitchens. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and TV chefs were, I mean, were around, but it, there was no aspiration to do that. It was, it was never, ever an aspiration to do that. <coughs> I was just working in the kitchens because I love food. Like I said earlier on, you always known as sort of being a, a really hard worker. When you were at school, when you were growing up, I don't think the word loner is the right expression because you've always been sort of very focused. Were you always happy being you? Because uh, I was when I yeah. was growing up, yeah. I wanted to be like everybody else. I always get the impression of you, James, that that was never really important to you. 
No, uh, there was a great guy in our, our, our class. There was always there was the sporty one. You know, there's always the sporty one. It's a guy called David Coates, and 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 every you walked got on the bus, and everybody sort of you know it was like the David Beckham scenario. Honestly, I didn't give a damn. I, I genuinely and and I've become mates with them over the years. It's kind of weird. You've got the the shyest guy in the class that would never go on stage, would never go. If there's somebody put a camera in front, that would run a mile. <laughs> I was never really interested in that, and and it sounds really weird. I wasn't. I was self obsessed. I just, I just knew what I wanted to do from a young age. That's the crazy thing. I just knew I, I wanted to work around that job. Be it working on the farm. I enjoyed the outdoors. I enjoyed being on the tractor and and and, and working on the tractor all day. I didn't really need to speak to anybody. If that made sense. Yeah. I, I, I kind of. People are diagnosed with other things, but it's just it's just the way that my mindset works. And even now, when when I need time, I just switch off and I just on myself. This is this is my boys' room, and I and I'll switch off, and I'll be in here for three four days. Wow! And I'll just think about everything, and 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 I'll probably be up till you know eighteen nineteen hours a day. But this is my zone where I can just concentrate on. I'll play a bit of pool, I'll play a bit of music, but I'm just I'm just concentrating on stuff and what, what I need to do next. I'm very happy with your own company. Yeah, I've, I've always been that, you know, and but I uh, you know, I've always admired other people. I've always I've always admired success. I've never I've never been envious of it. I've always admired it and I always respected it and I always think how do they got there? What what drives them on? You know, be whatever they do. And that's not money orientated that's mental it's it's you know my most success my most successful time you mentioned at the top was 21 years old i became head chef of a hugely successful brand new brand new hotel restaurant you know it was either step up to the plate or go on simple as that well let's build up to that point so so you finished school you said already you know you you, you weren't particularly academic and then you go to catering college so it, because you knew that that was what you wanted to do so did you fly were you kind of were you the best students in scarborough catering college then uh, I couldn't understand why anybody wasn't as passionate as me. And there was a few, but I couldn't understand it. And I couldn't understand why people finished work uh, and wanted to go to the pub and finished at four o'clock. I couldn't understand it. And and it was then I met, uh, uh, it, was, it was almost like this karate kid moment. It sounds ridiculous, but I always equate that. But there's a guy called Ken Anson. I was in the first year. You know what it was like at college. You had the old neckerchief on. Start chef's jacket, trousers that used to give you a chef's crack, those ones that you need, you know, th- those kind of things you, you quickly realise. <laughs> you, you learn about the power of cornflour very early, don't you? Uh, you, you? You do learn about that. But then, then, <laughs> then of course, you, if, if people are watching this don't want what we're talking about, but put a pair of start chef's tra- trousers on, you'll quickly realise in about two hours in a hot kitchen what I mean. There was a guy called Ken Anderson, and, and the, the, imagine a, a year used to go from 150 students to 100 students very, very quickly to sort of 50 in the second year and then maybe a dozen in the third year. And that dozen were, you know, I mean, there were people like um, Starring at Harem, uh, James McKenzie, you know, I mean, he trained uh, the, the, the pipe and glass. He's trained so many people and they've gone on to be Michelin star chefs. And, but back then it was like the Holy Grail and, and Ken Allison spotted me in the kitchen and he said, I've never seen anybody make sauces like you have at, 16 and do what you're doing do you want to come in and work with the the third years and it was almost that we sort of clicked and then sort of i i wanted to learn how to do pastry work and i asked you know we stayed behind at the end of uh, end of the college day and and learned some stuff so it was it was really weird it was was like that karate kid moment and you know i owe him probably my entire career i owe him more than anybody to be honest with you yeah, I'll never forget it. Never forget it. It's funny, though, isn't it? Those, those sort of pivotal moments where you can relate to something happening or a, or a person just putting you in that direction and go, right, I get this now. This is where I am. Someone has acknowledged the passion I have inside. They're saying, right, OK, not only do you have that passion, you've also got a skill. So, so go for it. So did he advise you then, James, as well, about what you should do when you were coming to the end of college? 100%. He said, you know, we, we did my end of, end of year exam and he said, We've got all these chefs coming up. We had Brian Turner, Royal Thompson, all these chefs, David Doricott, loads of chefs come up, Paul Gaylor, the Lanesborough. All the chefs came up and judged my end of year exam. All of them offered me a job. That was on the week before I left. So we, so that was on a Thursday. Then Friday, we, we, we're doing class and bits and pieces. And Monday we started. That was our final week. And then he said, you, we sat down that week. And, he, and I said, which do you recommend? And he said, I would go for there. So I left, I left college on the Friday. 
I got on the train on the Sunday uh, with 50 quid in my pocket, mate. And um, I went to London and, and at seven o'clock in the morning, I was outside Warrell Thompson's uh, restaurant uh, with a bag of knives, well, a rolled tea towel roll of knives. I couldn't afford a knife kit. So I had a tea towel rolled with a few little chef's knives. And that was it. The rest is history, mate. That's how it started. I, I left college on the Friday. I was there on the Monday. 7am in the kitchen. First day then. When you go into Chris, I mean, you know, a, a fantastic chef. Anthony, you know, really was a, was a proper groundbreaker. What's the first day like then? So you walk into a professional kitchen, if well, not for the first time, but first time outside of the, the family environment. Downstairs, you had the fine dining bit. Upstairs, you had sort of the, the, the brasserie bit. Uh, we used to do about sort of nine nine 900,000 covers a day, something like that, in the, in the bit upstairs. The pastry chef that I was working with said, I'm going to the toilet, and I never saw him again. And then you quickly realise in this game, if somebody goes to the toilet and checks if their knife is still there, because you will see him again. And I've had that happen so many times. And yeah, in my job, you turn around and they're gone. Uh, yeah, I never saw him and never seen him since. And I became head pastry chef by Thursday. So did it feel that you very quickly were, were living that dream, that, you know, here you were in a tremendous kitchen and you're rising through the ranks thinking, you know, this is, I was, I was born to do this almost. Yeah, I, I kind of, I, I kind of, I didn't, the hard work didn't worry me because I'd worked on a farm. That's proper hard work, manual labour. And, you know, you're out there in the winter, at least I had somewhere warm. I had, I had a roof over my head and I, and I was getting paid a little bit of money, not a lot. And I had something to eat and I, and I loved my job. Simple as that. That's, and everybody else thought I was mad, but I loved it. It's a recurring theme. Almost everybody that, that we've had on grilling, every single one of us that has, you know, has this passion for food, you kind of go, well, there's ridiculous hours, et cetera, et cetera, are the easiest part of it, really, because what else would you do? You know, it's not hard work, is it? Yeah, it's, it's long hours, but it's enjoyable. If you're doing something you love, it's not, you know, it's not, you're not training to be SAS. Do you know what I mean? That's hard, but this is, that's mentally and physically it's cooking, mate. It's just food. Just, just enjoy it. You know what I mean? It's just food. <laughs> I'm loving that. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just take that clip out on its own, and I'm gonna send it. I'm gonna send it to who should we send it to? Let's send it to Kerridge, and let's send it to yeah. Ainsworth. Let's send it all those boys. Go. There you go. No matter how much you think your art, this is what James and I actually think about it. <laughs> it's just food. It's, hey, mate! In 24 hours, it all passes through the same hole. Well, I was I was resisting saying that, but you're absolutely right. So, <laughs> so far, all of you listening to this, you think that James Martin, that really lovely bloke off the telly, has talked about putting cornflour down the crack of his backside and how he. What happens to Mrs. Todd food? <laughs> Welcome to the real world of James Martin. <laughs> All right, so, so, so how long did you stay with Anthony? What, what happened next? Anthony I was with for about a year, something like that. And very quickly, I, I then got the opportunity. Anthony, you, you changed the brigade quite a lot. So, so he said, right, you need to move on and do other things. So I, I, I quickly left and I went to Stephen Bulls uh, on Frith Street. And then I went down well, loads of different places. Uh, Hopkinson's, uh, I did there. I did a little bit of Kensington Place. Left there, I did the Park Lane Hotel. Went to Harvey's with Marco. And then um, I left London. And then I got the opportunity to be a pastry chef at Tewton Glen. Tewton Glen had just lost its mission in stars. It, had, it was trying to bulk up its brigade. I then went down there, bulked up its brigade. We got its star back in a year. And, and I, was still in my, I was still in my teens, really, uh, early 20s when that happened. And then... Robin Hudson and Gerard Basset, Gerard, probably one of the greatest wine sommeliers the world has ever seen, uh, sadly passed away recently, but uh, Robin Hudson, probably the greatest hotelier certainly the UK has ever had, um, certainly one of them, from the pig and limewood and all that kind of stuff, they had this idea with the Hotel de Van, and, and that idea was to sort of build up a new concept, new boutique hotel that had never been seen before. And then they, originally I was sous chef, and then they employed a lot of people to come down and do an exam not an exam, an interview where they had to cook a dish and give it to Robin and Gerard at Chewton Glen. And I kept, I remember working with them as like a commie chef in the afternoon because I was already employed as like the, one of the chefs in the kitchen, the new new hotel. So they said, work with these guys and tell us what you think. And, and, and I couldn't understand why these guys were trying too hard. It sounded ridiculous. And so Pierre Cheviard came to me and it, and it was on day four or something like that. And he said, the guy's not coming today, but what I want you to do is cook something that you want to cook. 
Cook it from your heart. Do what you want to do. Use anything you want in the fridge. Do something. And I cooked this little dish. I did a little bit of pan-fried sea bass, a lovely little sauce that I learned in France when I was uh, a little bourbon sauce. And I, and I worked in France when I was 13 on a section that used to do steamed potatoes and hate bourbon. That's all I made for nine months working. In, in, and I used to go back there in the summer break on the summer holidays when I was in my, my teenage years. So I made that and I got the job. So, so Pierre Cheviard, Pierre Cheviard, he said, you don't need to look anywhere else. The guy that you want is 10 metres away. And that was it. But knowing you, like I sort of think, I'm trying to think back when I was 21. I can't imagine having that level of responsibility. But I would imagine that for you, you just sort of went, well, yeah, you know, I, I can do this. I'm not saying that you weren't nervous about it or had apprehension. But I would imagine that for you, it was like, great, let, let's get at it. Sorry, there's never any. There was never any doubt in my mind that I was not going to. I was never going to say no. I think you you learn to push yourself, whether it's and that's been at school. Whatever I've done, I, I've you you put barriers in front of you. It's how to get beyond those barriers, round, over, under. But I'm going through. It's as simple as that. You're not stopping me. I'm yeah. going through. But you know, I, I then quickly learn. I think there's any any chef will tell you when they're young that you got to learn to build a team you're only as good at and then i quickly realized that it's the team around you that are more important than you yeah yeah i agree yeah and i think having that opportunity when i was young we had that young team with us no prima donnas we were raw but we were all keen well that's one of the things i was wondering because when you're 21 and you're head of the kitchen then obviously I would imagine that some of the team that you're working with then are far senior to you in terms of years and experience. And how did they react to you as this young upstart of 21 who's their boss? Because I just just said, make me this dish, and I made it better than them. Simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, I can't, I can't, you can't, you can't go in there and go in that big I am. Yeah. Uh, and, and even though you can't, and I think, you know, looking back, and that's what made I think what the reason why I do what I do. I still have the same passion for food, the same ethos. Yeah. But it's the the respect that you have for the people who you work with, and you, you can't go in there and demand respect. You earn it, and earning it in terms of our job is put it on the plate. There you go. It, it, it's funny because I, I I mean I've said this many many times. My dad when I when I f- sort of first started employing people. My dad said to me, he goes, when you start working with other people, you always need to make sure that you give them the best opportunity to succeed rather than the likelihood to fail. And I think in hospitality and in kitchens in particular, I think that's such a great ethos because I think sometimes our industry is very guilty of doing the complete reverse of that, that almost you set people up to fail. Not us, but you know what I mean? I think our industry. Yeah, no, it has been. No, it has been. Yeah. You know, and I think think that things are sort of changing. I think like the modern approach to being a head chef is the whole thing of saying, you know what? And like you just said there, James, that you're only as good as the weakest member of your team, really. So therefore, that team is everything rather than you. I think for me, really, I, I, it comes from the dyslexic side. Of it. I look at it and, and bring people in that are more powerful than I am in my weaknesses, if that makes sense. So I'm strengthening all the weaknesses that I've got. I'm strengthening everything around me. And that's not by a massive team. That's by certain people that I have directly around me. My PA has been my PA 28 years. You know, those people have been with me. So the, the Adam, ex-Waterside in head chef, left two years ago. Now he's working for me. He's technically a better chef than, than I am at certain things. Uh-huh. Having said that, when certain things go wrong with him, he calls me and then we work it together. And my experience then comes into... yeah into play so he's a chef that's that's progressing into the future and, and going to be a head chef of the future so he wants to learn how to communicate he wants to learn how to work with the team and like i said it's building up that that team around you i'm not the greatest chef in the world i never pretend to be and i never never would even dream about putting myself anywhere near carriage and and paul Ainsworth and that kind of stuff i know what i'm reasonably good at and i kind of stick to that but you know your you know what you're good at and you build on that. And that's, that's, I'm happy with that. So communication is, is a massive thing. And I think talking to you now and the way you talk about what happened when you got your first head chef's job and the way in which you kind of work with people, do you think you've always been a good communicator? 
Yeah, I think I think I've always the first thing I do, whether it, it's TV production or restaurants, the first thing I do is say hello to everybody. I know them all by name, and and I know all of them by name. <laughs> so I think you know you go in there and you treat people with the same respect as you wish to be treated. Simple as that. So I've always I've always tried to help people in terms of when they progress and they move on. Um, if they ever phone me up and say, "Can I can I help?" One chef who left my place about four years ago wanted a job somewhere and I phoned up a chef mate of mine and I've got him a job in his kitchen. There's no there's no CVs going in place, all that sort of stuff. It's the very least you can do. These people are working for you, then you look after them in the future. And you're very proud of that. You know, I'm I'm very proud of one of the commie chefs, well, one of the pot washers that we had in the Hotel de Mandes is now one of the senior members of uh, Thomas Keller's kitchen team in, in, in America. I mean, one of the senior members. Wow. You know, and he was a, he was a kitchen porter in our place that wanted to learn how to cook. I put him on a section. I, he was with me for two, three, three years, but you've seen him progress and where he is now. I just think it's amazing. And, and you, you know, it, it gives you goosebumps just, just doing that. And also you, 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 you kind of let them enjoy the success of everything. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Um, let them enjoy the trips that, you know, you know, we go away to some amazing places. Yeah. I bring the team. Yeah. You know, I'm going away to France next week, working in France and cooking for the French. I mean, how weird is that? You know, I'm going on, Going in there, been invited over, and one of one of two chefs from from the UK to go over there and cook with ten of the greatest chefs that France has ever produced. So you know, I'm bringing two of my younger team. One one kid's sixteen, one kid's eighteen. And uh, what will they make of Yorkshire puddings, James? <laughs> uh, we're not there. <laughs> do something a little bit different to that. Uh, yeah. I could I could do that. We could do something a little bit different. <laughs> All right. So so we've got your your head chef. Telly, when did the first little glimpse of kind of let's get this boy in front of a camera? It was it was Keith Floyd came down for a meal and we were a very successful restaurant and hotel. You couldn't get a table anywhere. And the waiting list was about nine months for a table. Wow. And Floyd came in, he wanted a table, and I went, You can sit at the bar. So he sat at the bar with the producer and there was there was there was other people there. And I just cooked this meal and, and they didn't order anything. They said, chef will just cook you something. I said, yeah, we're happy with that. And I brought this food out. I had this bandana at the time <clears throat> and it wasn't a gimmick. It was the fact that we buggered up the ventilation unit at the hotel and I'm six foot three. So I used to hit my head with a chef's jacket on, uh, a chef's hat on. So I used to wear this bandana and it was never a, it was actually an old bed sheet that I, that I drew on with pen uh-huh. to put some prawns. So I was any good at art and, and put this around my head. That's all it was. It was because I had long hair and I didn't have time to get my hair cut. And then this TV producer spotted me. So she said, there you go. This is my card. Lovely lady called Mary Ramsey. I don't know if you come across Mary Ramsey. No. <laughs> she, gave me a, she gave me a card, business card, and she said, call me. And I went, yeah, cheers, cheers, love. Thanks very much. Walked back to the kitchen. Thought nothing of it. And then the phone rang. She said, have you got an agent? I went, I, ain't, I know an estate agent, but coming for a flat. <laughs> And so she sent down a car. It was a chauffeur-driven car. First time I've ever been a chauffeur-driven car. I said, I had to be back. I had to get to London and back in three hours because I had to be back for service in between shifts. And um, I went up there and, and did this job. It was a load of cameras pointing at me. And, and she said, I've got this idea, but I also work on a big breakfast. What about doing that? I said, fine, we'll just do one show. I did one show. It turned out all right. And then did another show. Turned out all right. And then all of a sudden... They said, the viewers are loving what you're doing. Can you do more? And I went, no, I can't because I've got restaurants. We're about to open more hotel divans and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, then Ready, Steady, Cook sort of came knocking and I, and I competing my very, very first show against my old boss, Brian Turner and Warrell Thompson. Right. Let's hold that thought because this is a lovely kind of point for us to take our breath and have a bit of fun. Okay, so so James, we we do two things at this section here. First of all, um, we do we go into talking about barbecues and outdoor cooking. Uh, so what we do with all of our guests, we do our barbecue and a see what we're doing there. Uh, five questions, the same thing. Um, and I know that you love cooking outdoors, and I know you're a big barbecue fan. So do you have a do you have a favourite barbecue in memory? Uh, yeah, probably probably when we used to go on holiday to to Blackpool, uh, like most people do, and stay in one of those sort of uh, campsites, the the static motorhome sort of thing. I remember that on just a disposable barbecue. 
sausages. We always we were pork pork producers, so pork chops on a on a barbecue. That yeah, I used to remember just doing those and, and just having those with a little bit of uh, apple apple sauce out of a jar, and then gnawing on the bones afterwards. You know that oh, kind of stuff. But yeah, nice. I remember those on this is on the disposable stuff. But do you remember that that flavour though? Because I remember the first time. I, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit older than you, but I remember that first time with Tasty Barbecue food thinking, this is amazing. Yeah, I've not, I've not had food that's cooked on flames before. I can't believe this flavour. And like you just said then, gnawing on the bone of a, of a chop that's been cooked over flames is just, still to this day, it's so bloody delicious. Yeah, I think I kind of kind of get used to it because, you know, as a farming lad, we used to sort of set up the, the disposable barbecues in the back of the tractor, that kind of stuff. And it was it nowadays, it'd be health and safety nightwear. I used to do it on the top of the <laughs> top of the uh, the engine bay. But it was an old Massey Ferguson 135. And we used to sit there, it was all rusty thing. And I sat there with this just tray. So I was kind of used to it as a young age. And we always had great produce. That was the weird thing. Of course we you did, yeah. Great sausages, great, great bacon. And it was it was that that kind of stuff. So we had access to great produce, but yeah, I do remember the days of you know certainly sausages on the barbecue. That first taste, that, that oh. sort of charred bit on the outside, and yeah, and still to this day, it brings back the same memories, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing, is it? Food, and I, I, you know, obviously was preaching to the converted, but I never get it when people don't share that love of food and that evocative feeling of kind of like, you know, whenever I smell apple pie, it reminds me of my grandma and tastes and flavours and smells. You go, oh, that takes me back to a place of time. And those are great memories. Do you have a favourite time of year for barbecuing? All year, really. I've got that sort of outdoor sort of area that, that I built. And, and so I cook all, all the time. I live down the south now, so, I mean, so it's, it's like this is warm all year round, isn't it, compared with us northerners? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're telling me you've gone soft? You're telling me you've gone soft, you've become a soapy southerner, Martin? No, I'm not. It's just, it's just feel like I'm on holiday all the time. That's what, that's what it is. Because <laughs> I, I must admit, you know, still being a proper northerner, James, I do love a winter barbecue. <clears throat> I like that cold air. Yeah, I like, I like, I like the, the. I've got, I've got the fire pits outside. I love all that sort of that outdoor area where I'll, I was out there last night, you know, with a beer, bit of a bit of a cigar, and and just chilling out really. And it's just having to think about what what you're going to be doing. And and yeah, you take every opportunity you possibly can. So it's yeah, 365 days a year. Why not? Yeah. And have you ever, what's the most ambitious thing you've ever cooked outdoors or on flames or on a barbecue? Uh, probably, probably last week I, I, I had a Paul Ainsworth traveling feast, and and they, you do these festivals, as you know, you get you send them a recipe, and I, I sent him a recipe with this cake and spun sugar, and then he told me that he doesn't have any stoves, didn't have an oven, and everything was cooked on an open fire pit, um, <laughs> which was, which is pretty tricky, but we managed to do it, it managed to get it done, it was quite funny, but you you know you can achieve anything on a barbecue, simple as that, you know, there's no. There's no parameters with it. Uh, also, the thing is, well, when you were doing that, because I, I, I was down, uh, I think, the day before you at Paul's Feast. And not only is it kind of on open flames, but also everybody is standing pretty much on top of you. So uh, it's a really good opportunity to kind of go, this could go horribly wrong. Well, I think that, uh, I mean, in, in our game, you leave yourself quite open, don't you, really, in, in terms of, We've all done. We've both done live TV for enough to experience that, and I think the experience that you've gained over live TV benefits from when you're doing stuff like that. You know that if it does go wrong, you've got the ability to wing it and, and get through it. And I think, you know, say it's supposed to be this colour. <laughs> both of us know how to do that. <laughs> and it, well, okay, then well, a logical follow-on from that. Then, when you barbecue and any massive disasters, maybe not even yours. Um, Angela Hartner told a great story that she cut this amazing stuff on a barbecue, did all of the work, and her other half did one aubergine dish. And to this day, people talk about this aubergine dish, and every time she mentions it, it drives a max. It makes her think that, what did I do wrong? That they did nothing. I cooked great food. <laughs> um, I, I set, I set the, the, my, my side of my house on fire. Oh, that's, that's a good one. Go on, how? That was a good one, because we had, I mean, I love builders, and particularly we had a certain group of Irish builders who were fantastic that decided to build an Italian pizza oven roof instead of out of metal, uh, built it out of wood, which is quite <laughs> handy. Uh, which did sponsor <laughs> And I think the best one of all was, was my dad. My dad, we were, we were sort of, uh, like I said, we we're DIY people. My dad was hopeless at DIY. And he built himself a barbecue uh, uh, back home at the house and, and uh, on the farmhouse. And it was basically four uh, like concrete blocks 
uh, on one side, four concrete blocks on the other side. And we had some York stone, you know, the big, massive, great York stone. Huge, great thing. It took like eight of us to lift this thing on top of this thing. And he cooked the wood vinings. You know, he, had, he brought some vine prunings from France back over when I worked in France. Yeah. And he lit them and then decided to cook the steak in memory of our French trip to France. And uh, he was around the corner. Next minute, this almighty bang. It was like, it was <laughs> honestly a huge explosion. And you got bits of bits of lamb chops, pork chops, sausages <laughs> flying over the, the top of this house. It was massive. And there's an air, there was an air gap in the brick brickwork. And it, it, it basically overheated and exploded the whole thing when my dad stood next to it. Uh, it's just, I mean, oh, the image that I've got is just chops going about 20, 30 feet in the air. It was hilarious. I mean, and the thing is, that it, it's funny, but, you know, you sort of think, that could have been an absolute disaster. Oh, it could have been, but it was funny. It was funny. Yeah. It was funny. All right, and be honest, how long was it after you kind of settled down, everyone went, well, what's going to happen with the chops now then? <laughs> yeah, well, straight away. Straight away, we're picking them up off the floor. <laughs> picking them off the floor. Just so that'll be fine. It'd still be, be okay. Fine. All right. Okay. So next thing, uh, we, we do our challenge with all of our guests. And, and the way that this works is you have 45 seconds to sell me a dish. And what you can do, you can have any cut of meat, fish, or veggies. You need to have some kind of marinade or rub. And you choose some kind of side dish with it. Now, uh, it's simple, but um, you only have 45 seconds to do it in. So I mean, I've, I've been listening. I've been listening to this. This is easy. It's it's easy. Oh, okay. All right then. This is selling it to you, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, this is. If you imagine, James, I've um, I've dialed in on a chat line, and uh, I I need you. To, it needs to make me. It needs to make me feel. <laughs> this is this is the greatest. That that's put you off your stride, doesn't it? Not too easy now, is it? And I'm I'm sitting I'm sitting in my pants, James, and uh, I I just want you to kind of get me excited by your. Barbecue Lovely. Day. Thanks for that. <laughs> all right, are you it's ready? Not too easy, then, is it? Now, right, okay. I'm just, I just oiling myself up, James. I'm, uh, are you good to go? You're 45 seconds, Mr. James Martin, starting now. Quite simply, Simon Rimmer, uh, what I would do is, first of all, I would invite you down to my house. First of all, then we'd have a chat, we'd have a few beers, stuff like that, and then we'd decide what to cook. Um, I've got this new little. Himalayan salt chamber fridge, which is set in the studio. Beautiful Himalayan salt blocks behind. About 20 seconds of your 45 already, fella. That's all right. And then I'd get a nice steak from that, and we'd just cook it on a barbecue, however you wanted it, Bernays sauce, plate of chips, green salad from the garden, and then we'd crack a few beers, come to the boys' room, chill out, play a few music, a bit of music, and jobs are good. Good night. Do you know what? That was 40 seconds. I, I actually really like that. I, I, there you go. James, <laughs> James I, am, I am absolutely on for that. Well, I was, I was, I was listening to Gokwan going on about gal and gal and all this bloody stuff. Just have steak and chips and a bit of green salad. Just have good company, a <laughs> few beers, nice, nice few stogies, shoot a bit of pool. Jobs are good. I like that. Uh, and are you going to play guitar for me, James? But we'll come on to that a little bit later. I've got them here. I've, I've got them here. They're here. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm liking that a lot. All right. Brilliant. That, that's great. I mean, you know, I think it's that whole thing. Do you find now, because I know that as, as the years have gone on, and maybe lockdown has promoted it as well, I find that I want to cook outside far more than I ever used to. And, like, and I know that you've got that great setup at your house. Do you find that you, you're thinking, I don't care, I want to be outside rather than in more and more? Uh, yeah, I've, I've just, like I said, I've just got this lovely Himalayan salt fridge thing, which I, I love. It's, it's, it's amazing. It looks amazing. Yeah. So I, I'm sort of practicing with that, with it, fish and, and really simple sort of stuff. So, I, you know, we, I don't try and overcomplicate stuff anymore. We've got great, you know, line caught bass, as you, you know, Johnny flying fish. Yeah. Beautiful sea bass. You get that, put it in the salt chamber for two days, firms up that just in the wood fired oven. It's all you need with a bit of lemon. It, the thing is, the thing is about barbecues is it's it's as much about company as it is to do with the food. If that makes sense, it's. I always say to my chefs, I said, if you want to be the greatest restaurateur, forget about creating the greatest food. What you're doing is building a picture, and twenty five percent of that is food, and it is twenty five percent of it. No more. Chefs think it is, and it's not. The greatest meals you've had in your life are never in the greatest restaurants. I guarantee you, the greatest meals of your life will be, we mentioned the barbecues outdoors, will be you with your family because it's 25% who you're with, 25% the company, and then it's 25% other things like weather related, outside, whatever it is that, then you're building up this picture. And what we try and do in, 
as restaurateurs is build up that picture, not try to be the best. Don't want to be the best. What I want to do is be full. Yeah. And when we full, you know, we got 350 in a, in a, in a 45 seat, a restaurant today. Then, then I said to my chefs, now you've made it. Now you've made it. Cause we can be, we can be sat here twiddling our fingers, serving food at 350 pound a head and nobody in. Does that noise in a busy restaurant, I, I, you know, I have the very same ethos of you that what I want is I want people to go away and, and have a memory, whether it be a big or a small one. There's a noise that you get when you go into a busy restaurant. You go, they've got it. It's a, it's a noise of contentment and excitement. And, and that is generally built on everything. The atmosphere, the people, people come there because they just want something to eat. It's nice food. It's great service. You know, it's, it's all building that picture. You know, you've got a great atmosphere. It's not, as you know, it's not easy to get that. No. And the people who do it right have, have mastered it. And I had total admiration for people who do that. Yeah. You know, there's nothing worse in my mind going to a fine dining restaurant and nobody says anything. It's just, can't, you can that. hear a pin drop. I hate What's it. all that about? You know? I, re- I really, really do hate it. All right. Now, before we go on, I just want to let you know about a special offer we've got for you at weber.com forward slash grilling. If you want to improve your skills on the barbecue, Weber are offering you a discount to attend one of their grill academies. Now, that's where you learn to dazzle your friends with your barbecuing expertise by learning from serious masters of the art. And they are. I mean, the people that teach these courses are just off the scale. The offer is valid for grill academies in the UK. Enter the code GRILLING21. That's GRILLING21 before the 15th of October at Weber.com and get £50 off when you book two tickets on a course. You can find all the information you need at Weber.com forward slash grilling. Now, also, the Weber website's good place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons and a fantastic range of recipes, whole roasts, superfood stews, you name it, it's there. All right, so let's get back on track. So, Ready, Steady, Cook, that exploded onto our screens. I mean, all of you lot were like rock stars. It, it changed. It was a bit. It changed. It changed food television, really, didn't it? That show. Yeah, fifteen million people used to watch it on a Friday night. I remember that. I remember every two weeks, I used to be front page of the Mirror, Sun, or the Daily Mail, one of the two, falling out of some bar somewhere. <laughs> Uh, I, I remember that used to happen quite a lot because I was the the young one. I was kind of um, not the rebel, I suppose, not in a way that that Marco was a rebel, but just in a way that I just like to have a bit of a party, you know? Why not? And and yeah, it just it just went crazy. And from that, very very quickly, it went insane. I remember having not enough money to buy a buy a round of drinks, and seriously, not enough money to buy a round of drinks for my mates to then buy my first flat within three months. Wow. But in between, not having not enough money to to buy a round of drinks and trying to get my first flat, I went out and bought a Ferrari. That was the priority, not 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 the flat, not the somewhere to live. I was I had a Ferrari and I lived above a Chinese restaurant and an Indian curry house. My bedroom was above the curry house. My my lounge area kitchen, because it was just a it was a forty pound a week flat, and but I had a Ferrari in the back. The, the the car park at the back. You see, now this is where our television careers differ. So my <laughs> my start my television career was on Granada Breeze. I got paid right. uh, I got paid seventy five pounds, and I had to bring my own ingredients. <laughs> well, I was doing that, mate, but I I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I remember I remember phoning up my agent. Now is still the agent I had back then, and we we she said I'll take you on as a trial, and I remember getting paid. And it was probably more money than I'd seen in my life. I think it was about maybe eight grand, something like that. Wow. And I said, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. You know, you've got it wrong. I said, you know, uh, that was for four days. And she went, no, that's per show. Wow. And I couldn't get my head around it that I'd made more in a per show than I'd done in a month working at the hotel. So So did you quit the hotel, James? Did you get to the point where you had to make that decision? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, the, that decision happened quite quickly. So a lot of people say, well, wh- how have you got to where you are? I, you, there is no, there is, you, you, you can do all the manner of PR people. And chefs have now got PR. They've got more bloody people than they've got working in the restaurant. Yeah. Uh, some chefs, they've got PR people running around with clipboards. I ain't got any of that bloody stuff. And I still, to the fact, don't know. And and the, the people I work with, because people watch your shows. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't. I, even now, I, I'm going. What, what? What? What makes me different to anybody else? And what gives you a career of thirty odd years doing it? And 
I still don't know. I have just been believing what I believe in, but people watch the shows. You're selling yourself very short there, Mr. James Martin, because I remember on those early days of Ready, Steady, Cut, one, you're a very good-looking boy. I mean, like, yeah, you're still a very good-looking man now, but back in the day, when you were young with your, with your long hair... You're not sat in your pants again, are you? And your, ban- and your, and your bandana. <laughs> Hold on, I'll just, I'll just put a bit more oil on. <laughs> uh, and, your, and your bandana. I mean, you were, you, you know, you were a very good-looking boy. You, you, you know, you were very rock and roll looking. Like you said, compared to everybody else on Ready Steady, not being rude to any of the other, you know, boys and girls that were on it, then you were the young kind of sexy one. So, you know, you, you were quite boy bandy. And I think that, you know, you, you did have that appeal. And I think on the show... You spoke a different language to everybody else. I think it was a pace different to anybody else. I remember yeah. I remember doing Ready, Steady, Cook thinking, why isn't anybody else doing eight dishes in 20 minutes? Yeah. Because I was working in, in the restaurant every hour that God sent, and then I used to get in my car and drive to the studio, record that, and go back to the restaurant. And so I was a different pace, and, and the restaurant was... The, re- the restaurant reminded me, to be honest with you, is the exact blueprint of what one line to Queensgate was when I worked there. Uh-huh when I was six, 17 years old. It was the exact, the queue outside, the waiting list to try and get in, the busyness of a restaurant. The hotel was packed. We used to get celebrities galore there. And it was just manic. Um, and I was the young kid at the helm, not knowing, and not knowing any different, really, just concentrating on food. Yeah. And, and of course, when you do go out and you, you go out partying, you do fall out of a bar and, and stuff like that. But, I, you know, I, I just... There's very, very opportunities where I got to do that until I was 22, 23. And things happened very, very quickly. Did you miss the restaurant? Or, or, or was that, you know, let, let's face it, the reality being when you start working in telly, it's exciting. You know, it's a really exciting world. No, because, no, mate, because it, it was a whirlwind like I've never seen before. I was probably working, I think the same ethos you mentioned at the top, that I was working, I was actually working harder doing that than I ever was in the restaurant, if that made sense. Yeah. Uh, because I was dragged from pillar to post, photo shoots, all over this, do this, do this, do this. It was when food was going on television, it was doing that. And then it went, Boof. yeah. So, so you were at that curve. I remember sat there talking to Jamie Oliver and we were rocketing. And Jamie, nobody knew who he was. Yeah. When I was sat at the NEC Metropole, nobody knew who he was. And I went, mate, you're going to be huge. And he went, nah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm doing this thing called Naked Show. I'm not quite sure. But we were 14 million people. We used to go out on, on, on the NEC, 5,000 people out there. It was rocking. And then you go back to the band. Jamie was sat there. Nobody nobody knew any, who he was. Uh, but it was on that curve. And he just, he just sort of, as that curve sort of got halfway, then Jamie hit. And it just went crazy from there. And, and, and we were quite fortunate. I mean, timing's everything in this job, isn't it, really? And, yeah. You're quite lucky. But I, I look back and think, well, if I hadn't have done the restaurants, I wouldn't have been spotted. If I hadn't have done all the stuff that I've done since I was eight, I wouldn't have been able to be head chef when I was 21, be in that position where I would have been given that job, let alone to be able to succeed when you're given that job. Yeah. So so I, I kind of think, well, I, I don't miss it, but I, I wanted to go back to it, if that made sense. But I was too busy going you know it was it was riding a wave that i had no control over and that's the weird thing all your life in terms of restaurants you have control over what you want to do if you don't like it you can leave you you can go there but this is very different because i i remember probably around that time is sort of the first time i met you i think one of the first times i met you was actually at the nec was that was where was the me and nick Nairn and paul rankin yes 6 a.m Yes, 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 it was. Yes, it was, James. It absolutely was. And I was then, uh, I was then back in the NEC at ten, which is very, very unpleasant. So yeah, that was us. That was us. I can remember that feeling now. That, that, but that was the NEC. That, that BBC Good Food Show back then. It was the only time when all of us who were chefs and also did a little bit of media stuff. It's where we all got together, and it was a properly brilliant time, wasn't it? Even though that is the worst hotel in the world. It was it was good it was good fun but and I and I remember you know I remember meeting you I think it was six a.m. something like that you were you were on the way uh, uh, yeah that's when the party we were with that that we were still up yeah and then we used to go back to the hotel room have a shower put a chef's jacket on and go to work oh terrible Ter- I couldn't do it now way too old but I I think one of the things though that I always remember of those days is that you could have. You could have kicked back a little bit if you'd wanted to. You could have become a little bit arrogant in terms of not putting the effort into your demos. 
Going back to the very start of this interview about work ethos and, you, you know, the old Yorkshire rush, you don't get out for now. You've never lost that. You were always known as being the guy that would like, you'd, you'd roll up in your camper van, you'd sleep in your camper van at times. And you yeah. do the stuff, and you you've never stopped working. Still now, you still don't. Yeah. Is that because of a love for it, or is it also? Are you slightly insecure that you worry about it ending? Several things. I worry about it ending for sure. Not that I'm fussed about it now as much as I was, but I I still care more than I did before. If that makes sense, because when I do sort of this morning, none of the home economists can understand why I'm in there at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. They don't understand. I'm in there. I'm there waiting for them to open up. Yeah. And I make every single dish that I give to Holly and Phil or make for a photo shoot, every single dish I make, everyone. Yeah. And 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 nobody is allowed, somebody's allowed to serve it, but all the sauces I make, all the food I cook, it, it's not it's in it comes down to what I my ethos yeah. been, I suppose, the Michelin trained and that kind of stuff, been been going, I'm not gonna give anybody to anything that I wouldn't serve to anybody if that makes sense so it's just because it's tv doesn't make any difference yeah and it's got to be right and that's that, that's that, but that's I suppose where the the i suppose that's where the, the the what you mentioned about at the top of this the work ethos comes in because people know that if people book me for a job that i'm there usually before them yeah always uh, you know and, and you still work on i suppose the, the the other thing i want to touch on with your media career was another change in your demeanour or in your or in your uh, your your brand, if you like, was when you took over Saturday Kitchen from another of your former bosses, Anthony Royal Thompson? Yeah. Well, that all came about by Strictly. And to be honest with you, without doing Strictly, I wouldn't have got Saturday Kitchen. There's no question. Yeah. Because Strictly, everybody voted to keep me in, and I couldn't understand why. And actually, the BBC couldn't understand why. They said, "Who's voting for this fat chef that's losing a load of weight and <laughs> and, uh, and and getting through as far as I got?" But no, that without a doubt, if it wasn't strictly, I wouldn't have got Saturday Kitchen. Simple as that. And when you when you did that, did it feel that it was another move for you? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want to do strictly, mate. My PA said you're doing it. I didn't want to do it. Yeah, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it for a PR thing. I just didn't want to do it because I knew that I had restaurants to run. It, I knew that it was going to be 16 weeks of hell if you stayed in it for that long and I've got bloody restaurants to look after so I don't do anything to promote my career it sounds weird but I don't I don't have a a team of PR specialists to say well you do this you'll gain this you do absolute rubbish I don't I don't worry about Instagram social media none of this yeah I don't I genuinely don't and I think I'm just the same bloke you know me yeah, yeah. same bloke chatting to you now whereas I meet you down the pub as whereas I meet you at the demo I'm not different to yeah, what I am outside of things, and I think that's, and I never changed from that. And you know, and and I suppose if somebody if somebody saw me change from that, I don't they'd punch me in the face. <laughs> All right, well, there's two things we need to talk about outside of kind of cooking and television. One is cars. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, you have some vehicles, James Martin. I mean, you said <laughs> that you know when you got some money, then then you bought a Ferrari, and so now what what's in the collection now? Because it's an enviable collection. Um, there's quite a few. It's about forty-three, forty-four, something like that. So we got everything from a very first classic car that I ever bought was a Gullwing Mercedes, beautiful, nine fifty-five Gullwing. I think when you when I made a bit of money, it was either you know everybody was saying you buy a Bugatti Zonda. You know, well, everybody just looks a dick in a Bugatti Zonda. I mean, you just look like a bloody idiot. So I quickly learned that the classics for me were where it's going to be. So I bought that. Then I bought another one. And then I bought a, a, a Mini, I bought a, but not normal Mini, I bought an X-Works Cooper S, genuine Paddy Opkirk car. Then I bought a 350 Shelby, and then the collection started growing. And then it got a bit serious, and it's got a bit serious recently. I'll, I'll show you in a minute, but I've got a few next door that probably my serious sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> it, got, it got a bit serious. Now, it, now it's got a bit really, really serious now, and, and now the collection's growing to such an extent that, you know, uh, now I've got a mechanic, and it's yeah, it's got a bit of an obsession really now but it's it's um i like the collecting in terms of i like being able to look after it for the next person so yeah you're just one you're just part of a storyline of its history i'm not into valves and pistons and 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 go through genetic compound of a bloody carrot i'm not interested in any form of that i'm just interested in the the thing to me is a movable piece of art. Do you drive them all, James, or are some of them too valuable to drive? Almost. No, I've just I've just had an I've just had two of them MOT. I've had a ex Petter Solberg Subaru Impreza WRC X Works rally car. 
and Colin McRae's Ford Focus, which is I'll show you in a minute. But I've had I've had that on my teeth. Show us, show us now, show us now, yeah, Dave. You want I to want see, to see it? Okay. Yeah. There's a, there's a, so in here, there's a, there's Colin McRae's Ford Focus that he raced in 2002. He won five rounds of the championship in it. There's a GT40, original 60s GT40. There's a my pride and joy, which is a Ferrari 27. And then there's the latest one that I've got a box. Now I've got this old drophead, old man's Bentley, but I love it. But I'll show you. It's in, it's in here. But this is the this is the boys' room bit. This is kind of like the green room. So that that motorbike there, Steve McQueen's old Triumph. Oh there. my goodness! Um, but you've got you've got all bits and pieces in it, and then through here. You do realise nobody's actually seen this, Mister Rimmer. Yeah, no, it's been recorded, so people will be able to watch it. But you know what? It, it, and if and if you can't see it, you just hear it. No, I haven't. I haven't shown. I haven't shown, I haven't shown anybody this, right? But are you ready? So this is some of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm dead excited. So, oh my god. So I'll go over here, but that's that's Colin McRae's. So they've all got glass doors on. So on a night, I can put the lights on and I can see all my cars. But there's there's about five places like this that have got glass fronts on. But that's that's Colin McRae's Ford Focus WRC rally car. It's a GT40 that won at the Whitson Trophy at Goodwood. Jason Plato and myself raced that. That's quite a nice car. That's a Bentley Continental. Oh, that's beautiful. R-Type Continental. That's lovely. And then this is my pride and joy. This is a Ferrari... 275 GTBC. Wow. Wow. I mean, I've always, you know, I've, I've heard of your collection. I know, you know, we've talked cars quite a few times, but that's... Oh, mate, that's that's nothing. It just keeps going and going and going. I've got... I know, this is just a, a, a mere bag of tell for what you actually have. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. There's, there's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few. I'll show you. There's another one in here, I think. The, the mechanic keeps moving stuff around, so I don't actually know what's in here from one minute to the other, but one second. Taking you through the boys' room. <laughs> This is, this is, I, I do hope that I do hope that we can see some of this because it because it is just there's the, a lovely the, 380 SL. This is just amazing. It's a, that Ducati has only done 80 miles. Uh, through here. One second. So this is so you've got in here you've got Peter Solberg Subaru. That's a Mustang 350 Shelby. Ah, uh, what year's the Mustang, James? I love a Mustang. Uh, 65. Beautiful. So that's Peter Solberg's Super Scooby. Yeah. That's Paddy Opkirk's Cooper S. Wow. Another Cooper S works car, and he just goes on and on and on. But this, mate, you're welcome in any time. You can just chill out. You see, that's why I would invite you over here for steak, and we just Fine. shoot pools. Honestly, got... there, there won't be any time for anything other than steak and chips because it takes <laughs> three hours to walk around your car collection. <laughs> there's a there's a few odds and sods here, and then there's, we've got a, there's a big there's a big unit down the road that's full of old bits and all. And Keith Lloyd's two CV as well. One last thing, because the other thing that we've sort of seen in your house, and this is a recent thing that, and you being you, you decided that you'd learn the guitar, but not just learn the guitar, you then also form a band. <laughs> well. It came, came, the tour came first. I, I, when I left uh, the BBC, somebody approached me and said, look, we want to do a tour. And chefs had done tours before and theatre tours and with varying degrees of success. None of them had really worked. And, and so I said, look, if you think it's going to work. And they said, we think it'll rock. It sold out within three weeks. It went mental. So, so, they, so Manchester was in the restaurant. Anyway, the tour guys phoned me up and said, we've sold out all the tickets in four weeks. The tour's not for another eight weeks away. But you want a big ending to the, the show. You've got to think of a big ending to the show. And I remember watching Lee Evans, and he was at Wembley, and he was playing the piano. I don't know if you've seen that, but he played the piano. He sings, and it was amazing. He gets the choir out. It's a fantastic ending to a show. And I thought, well, I can't do that because we ain't got the budget, but I just, I'll go and play an instrument. I've never played an instrument in my life, ever, never. And um, so I went over the road. You know Forums, which is on the Dean's Gate there? And yeah, I yeah, went, yeah. I went, yeah. I went to them, and I walked in, and they were, all right, James, how you doing? I said, yeah, well, I've got this idea with... We saw these tickets and this theatre tour, and I want to, I want to come out at the end and play play the track and 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 you know really give it the beans and and play the house down, you know. And they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I quite fancy the piano, you know. And 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 he they said, well, sounds good. We've got this piano, this piano. I'm sat there and, and I cut. And he said, you can play that one. I said, I'm, I'm not, I've never played a musical instrument in my life. And he said, well, when's the when's the tour? And I went, eight weeks. He went, he shut the piano lid. He shut the piano lid. He went, get a guitar upstairs. And I went up there and I got a guitar. I came back. My PA got a few people to teach me. And the first guy was hopeless. He was too interested, too interested about the guitar that I bought. It was like the holy grail to him. The next guy came along, a guy called Seb, 
got out of the car, rock god, you know, long air, uh-huh. plugged the guitar in, went, <laughs> I went, he's the man, that'll do. And and so eight weeks later, we walked out. I remember I remember playing Liverpool. Yeah. And I remember Manchester United had just beaten Liverpool. At the track that we were playing and singing was Oasis. And oh. I thought, this is going to, this is not yeah. Gonna yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, the Liverpoolians loved it and they, they embraced it. And I thought, if I could play there that, at that particular day, on a Saturday night, we could do anything. And then it morphed from there. And then we started to, people say, well, do another tour. And I did another tour and I got Matt Knopfler to do some videos for us from Dire Straits. Uh, and then the, 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 my guitar instructor, Seb, said, well, you're now good enough. That, why don't we put a band together? <laughs> so we put this band together and Chris Evans found out about it. Our first every gig, we used to rehearse it in here, mate. We're rehearsing on Thursday night. So this Thursday night we're rehearsing and we're appearing at Carfest for the second time. We're on Saturday night in front of 32,000 people <laughs> in between the bands. We're playing two tracks. We're rehearsing here. And then we take it, plug it into the big speakers, and then we're on stage in front of 32,000 people. But we played it, I mean, the Cornish Festival as well. We were there. Yeah, I saw you at Pub in the Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw you the stage. Yeah. And, and now that now I'm getting accused of, I got accused the other day. I, this is why social media, I, I don't, I kind of switch off, but I thought it was hilarious. There was a whole thing wrapped going on that James is miming. I mean, miming pissed me off. I spent, I spent hours in here. My fingers are knackered. Hours. They now accuse me of miming them. Uh, but, so we, so I'm in here rehearsing. I'm rehearsing tonight. We got the band rehearsal on Thursday, and then, we, then we're on stage on Saturday. But it's a good fit. Do you know what I mean? It's, if you're going to do anything in life, so you've got to enjoy it, and you've got to try your best and, and, and push your boundaries. And you clearly do. I was genuinely blown away. I said that to you when I saw you perform at Pub in the Park. You know, I thought you would be, uh, maybe playing a bit of rhythm guitar alongside, but you're actually doing it. No, you thought it was going to be a shit. You thought it was going to be shit. Okay, you? that's did. what you I did. Thought. James, I did. I did. I thought he's going to be really, really shit. Which, to be honest with Sam, which was probably about 28,000 of the 30,000 people that saw us the first day. And then, of course, you play it and they go, and what's great about it is now I'm stood on stage and he got me guitar. And even at the, the, the Cornish, the, the, the Travelling Peace one with Paul, Paul knows we play. And of course, people heard us and they're all going, go on then, go on then, go, get, go on then. And I went, right, go on then. And we're off. And, and it's quite, you get the, the reaction that you gave me, I remember at Pub in the Park, was the same of all my mates going, did I just listen to that? <laughs> it's true. And, you know, you, you do. You you do it so well, and you know it's a it's a tremendous string to your bow, Mister Mister Right, one final thing before we go, because yeah. as ever, I knew that we'd run massively, massively over with you. And um, all of our guests, we asked them to kind of um, take us to a little secret place. It could be anywhere in the world. It can be a restaurant, yeah. but what has worked really well with people is a little coffee shop or a patisserie or the somewhere they've been on holiday. Where are you going to take our listeners as your little secret place? So you and I, we're just going to go somewhere and say, mate, I've got to take you here because it's amazing. Where are we going? Well, I'd take you my secret place, which is already here. But if we had to go to another secret place, I'd go to Whitby. Okay. All right, mate. I would go to Whitby um, and I'd fly you there because I love flying. So, So I'd pick you up. We'd, we'd land, um, land on a bet. We've got a mate of mine who owns a golf course. So we'd land on the 18th tee where people have gone. We'd yeah. land there and we walk down the hill in Whitby. I don't know if you've ever been to Whitby. I have. Love Whitby. Brilliant place. It, it's a bit like Amalfi, isn't it? It's lovely. Oh, just the same. Like, Very similar. Just the same. Yeah. Just the same. <laughs> so I'd walk down there and I would, I would go, my mate and I'd answer the magpie. I would go and have a large one of each. That's a large cotton chips or haddock and chips, but large fish and chips. I'd have a takeout. I'd walk along the seafront, and and there's got an iron bench there that's been there for years. Your ass is freezing cold when you sit on it, but as you open up the pot of gold, oh. you know they're in the presence of greatness in Whitby. When just as about to eat the the finest fish and chips you've ever tasted in life, a bit of snot just drips on your chips. That's <laughs> where that's where I'd take you, mate. And we'd have we'd have that and a, a nice cold one, and then fly back. And that that'll be about it. You know what? Uh, just for a little while there, James, I was imagining sitting there looking all nice and all finery. We're holding hands, and then you spoil it with the snot dripping onto your fish and chips. It just it just killed that romantic moment. Yeah, yeah, mate. You you spoiled it with you you spoiled it with holding hands. You, you brought the pants. <laughs> 
scenario. I didn't do any of that. Mate, it's always, always a joy to spend time with you, whether it be <laughs> kind of like, you know, down the line or, or in person. Well, you see more of, you see more of my house than anybody now. That's that's it. Oh, well, you know what? And thank you for that. It's 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 been brilliant. And and one day then I'll come down and you know, we'll do exactly that. You can cook me steak and chips, we'll have a few cold ones, and then I can pretend that I'm Steve McQueen and I'll sit on that motorbike. Well, why don't you come? I'll do your deal. I'll come on your show again because I've only been here once, and then you you come on my show. How's that? How's that a deal? All right, fine. I'd love to do that. All right, let's do that. Let, let's make that. Let's make a pact that we do. That. You heard it on this podcast thing. Exactly. Right, there you go. Exactly, mate. It's a, it's a joy to see you. Look after yourself, my friend, and uh, I will see you soon, no doubt. And by the way, congratulations on your award for the podcast. Oh, bless you, mate! Thank you very much. I know you. I know you get. A, I know you get a little bit upset when other chefs start winning awards. That you're. you're, you're <laughs> oh, here we go! It he gives with one hand, <laughs> takes with the right. This stems from. <laughs> Where does it stem from, Simon? It stems from an, an award ceremony. I was on the next table to James. Saturday Kitchen won the award. I'm sitting on the next table uh, with Tim. And then afterwards, Tim and I are sitting, drowning our sorrows in the bar. Old bloody fancy pants here comes in, not just with a big smile on his face, clutching his bloody award. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Mate, just remember, it all comes from chicken licking. That's where it all started. <laughs> Mate, it's a joy to see you, fella. Look after yourself, and I'll see you soon. Take care. See you later. Thanks so much to James for joining us on Grilling. Car collection, plays musical instruments, bought a Ferrari with his first check from Ready Steady Cook. I don't know why he's my friend, I really don't. Um, hopefully we've given you a few ideas as to what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber barbecue. Head to Weber.com for plenty more recipe ideas from ribeye steaks with blue cheese and chive butter to asparagus, tomato and feta frittatas. And don't forget, check out that £50 discount to the Grill Academies at Weber.com forward slash grilling. Do review, rate and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and tell your friends about us too if you like what you hear. Next up, the legend that is Michelle Rue Jr. So we do hope you can join us for that. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>